You don't go back. You don't go back to light American pilsners after drinking well-made 4.5% Blondale. Life's different. It changes for you at that point. X-Ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Show and Podcast, broadcast to you in Portland on X-Ray FM and available also anywhere on your favorite podcast service. That's why we're the show and podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I am Patrick Emerson. I'm a professor of economics at Oregon State University. And with me, as always, the wise and wonderful Jeff Allworth. I am Jeff Allworth. I'm the author of books like the Beer no, Bible. No, no, no. You don't introduce yourself. I introduce you. Because oh, you're I'm... introducing us both. I ah, I misunderstood what you were going to do there. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, see, I'm, I'm, I gave I'm, Jeff a heads up on this. I was going to switch it up. I said, I'm going to introduce myself and then you. That's what I said, quote unquote. And that's how he took it. Oh, yeah, but I... But when I heard that sentence, I heard uh, comma and then you, which meant <laughs> then you go. It was implied. Oh. You are well, Jeff Allworth. You are the author of several books, including The Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Widmer Way. If I made you introduce yourself, it would sound a little arrogant. I'm Jeff Allworth, the beer writer. Oh, I see what it is. I see how it is. I listen to a show between two professors, and they do their own introductions. And it's not at all arrogant, and it's not weird unless one of them interrupts the other to say, oh, my God, you're doing it wrong. So screw you, Emerson. Wait, what is this podcast? Hey, we're getting off to a rollicking start here, aren't we? <laughs> well, <we're, laughs> like I said last time, caveat emptor is stand behind. We're on brand, baby. What Indeed. is this podcast with two professors? I want to know. Uh, it I is what kind the, of podcast with two professors you would listen to? It's the uh, kind of politics and history uh, podcast from Julian Zelizer uh, and Sam Wong of Princeton University. Uh, Julian's a historian and Sam is a, a behavioral psychologist, but also really interested in polling and data science. Yeah. All these professors doing podcasts. It's pathetic. I know. I know. Debasing yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> they have better use of their time. Especially, especially uh, doing podcasts like on stuff they know about. Like they should just go crazy. Do stuff do a podcast on beer. I'd like right. to see two Princeton historians talk about beer, pol- political scientists, whatever they are. That would be that would be interesting. I but, would not listen I would not listen but to politics that. and history, that's not interesting. That's boring. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, how are you, Jeff? I'm pretty good, uh, Patrick. You know, I, I, I'm feeling good. I, actually, I'm feeling quite good. Life is going to get better. I have a strong sense that life is moving in a good, positive, wholesome direction and that I will be sitting in a pub or sitting outside a pub, at least, with a beer and a friend uh, soon. You know, yes, the warmth thank you. There. Thank you, science. Thank you, yeah. modern Thank you, modern science. Uh, th- my th- wife. Th- science for allowing us to sit together and also for making us the beautiful tasty beer like it's, it's like a whole scientific explosion of delight where would we be without science the days are getting longer so as you listen to this it will be post uh, daylight savings which means uh, uh you know we're gonna it's all of a sudden the world is gonna seem like a much brighter place it's not gonna be dark at at four anymore and um yeah i don't know I've been I've been riding my bike, so I'm healthier. I just feel good in life. How, how yeah. are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing well as well. We had a spate a spate of uh, warm, sunny weather here, and it was amazing. Like all of these, because Portland's really pushed the um, made it very easy for bars and restaurants to put a little um, uh, outdoor seating area instead of the curb parking in front of their establishments, um, and those places just like filled right up. So Absolutely. you can just see you can just see how much pent-up demand there is i feel for those people who've been able to to hang on through the pandemic i think that pretty soon this summer you're going to see a big uh, a big response there's going to be just so much pent-up demand to go out have beers socialize eat drink be merry totally we uh, here's a classic portland story before we <laughs> since we're just kibitzing here uh near my house is a street called ankeny and they blocked off one block of ankeny uh, next to 28th, 27th and 28th. There is a restaurant uh, on the south side and a brewery, Gorgeous Brewery, which used to be Coalition, on the north side. Mm-hmm. And in between are a bunch, dozens of uh, uh, tables, which for the last few months have been sitting there, it, you know, very depressingly uh, empty and, you know, 
maybe like one person sitting out there with a cup of coffee. There's a coffee shop there uh, when it's not pouring rain. And then we had that hot snap and I, I went for my bike ride and at like at two 30, I went past that little stretch of Ankeny and not a table was empty. <laughs> it was totally packed. It was yeah. like yeah. 54 degrees and sunny and boom, two 30 people are like, screw it. We're going, we're going to the pub. Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it's like in my neighborhood as well. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Yeah. We have a, a fan, a fantabulous guest today, uh, that um, you arranged. So I don't want to limit our time. We should transition to our interview. Indeed. Today we speak to David Walker of Firestone Walker, legendary Firestone Walker. The California brewery turns 25 this year and its own evolution from a brewery specializing in English pale ale, rip the English pale ale, on a modified Burton Union system to one purchased by a, a multinational brewery in the great consolidation phase of the middle teens, now featuring multiple product lines and locations, closely mirrors that of craft brewing itself. In our conversation, we use Firestone Walker's experience to refract the lessons of the past 25 years of American brewing. All that soon, but first, the news. The COVID pandemic has been hard on businesses, but we've been surprised it hasn't hit breweries harder. A fragment of data out last week may help explain why they're doing better than expected. According to Nielsen, consumers spent $97 million on, million on craft through e-commerce in 2020, which accounted for 24% of all uh, beer category dollar sales online. In brick and mortar sales, however, craft beer makes up just 12.6% uh, of all dollar sales. And in fact, craft has the second largest dollar share behind flavored malt beverages at 32%. So because of a weird quirk in the way uh, beer is sold, people have been able, brewers have been able to kind of scramble and figure out a way to make money. Um, and I know they're not getting rich, but they're surviving, which is great news. Yeah. And actually, if you look uh, carefully at some of the data we're now getting about the national economy, it's a little startling, startlingly good. Um, which... Wait, don't, don't leap on the, look at the next bullet, oh. man. <laughs> Okay, should we just go to the next bullet and talk about them together? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so it seems, uh, the next bullet, I didn't even read it. It seems like the ice is starting to break on the economy. We recently got employment numbers, which are ticking up. Employers added 379,000 jobs in February and January. Oh, February. And January gains were revised higher to 166,000 jobs. Congress seems poised to pass the $1.9 trillion relief package. And President Biden announced plans to take delivery of enough coronavirus vaccine for all adults by the end of May, thanks to an agreement by Johnson & Johnson for rival, rival Merck to help manufacture the drug. Yeah, so as I was saying, that yes. th there is a... Great minds. Uh, man, great minds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been a bit surprising how uh, good the economic data has been, and I think to the point of the first uh, uh, bullet point, uh, it sort of shows you, I'm trying to, I don't want to be so rah-rah about great, you know, American capitalism, but it does show you sort of how nimble uh, our economy is and how uh, uh, adaptable the sort of, you know, uh, business people, capitalists, if you want, um, have been in order in dealing with this um, uh, pandemic. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's probably a lot to unpack there, and there's probably some 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 bad stuff there. We we see some states just throwing open the doors, which will probably goose short term economic gains, uh, but you know may come bite them in the butt. So it may not be a yeah. I don't mean to, I, I, I don't mean to suggest that everything's rosy. I'm just saying relative to what it uh, what I had feared and what a lot of economists had feared the damage. The damage doesn't appear to be as dire. Although I will say that, like I've said before, I think there's a lot of underlying malignancy, I suppose, <laughs> um, that's, that's there in the economy. There's still, there's still a lot of, uh, uh, people have dealt with the pandemic sort of by making, you know, uh, um, uh, dealing with the short term, but put it pushing off the long term effects, and I think there's still going to be a sort of long term effects that come and hit. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I totally, I take your point. I think we have to acknowledge the uh, racial and class disparities that have happened with the, you know, the, the what, what looks to possibly be a, a K-shaped recovery. And uh, those are issues we need to deal with. And I think the relief package will really help with them. So I'm, I'm glad that's that's happening. But you're right. Uh, there's, there's no way to go back you know, to a year ago, it's now been exactly a year since it started and think how dire we thought it was going to be. If you'd told us the the entire economy would be crippled for a year, we would have just, I mean, we would have just imagined, you know, half the, half the businesses in the country would be out of business. We'd have unemployment at 30%. I I was, it would seemed really bad. Yeah. I thought I was a little bit of a, a, uh, an optimist and I thought that the, the sort of pandemic would be over earlier or that we would have found effective treatments, that we would have found um, uh, not not that not that the vaccines would be any sooner. That they happen about as quick as you could you could hope for. But that the virus would wane, that mutations would be less uh, virulent, that uh, that we'd have effective treatments and all that. So I was a little bit of an overly optimistic, it turns out. Uh, but I was a little overly pessimistic, I suppose, on the economic side. Uh, I will say that sort of the takeaway that I was trying to, uh, or the main point I was trying to make, was that I think that. Um, the recovery could be stronger, quicker, faster um, than we expected. And I think that's that's the good news, that I think that, that there's a good chance that we're going to have a really uh, uh, dramatic rebound. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the trough has not been nearly as deep. And, and based on my incredibly limited understanding of economics, that affects how fast we bounce back, right? So that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. All right. Should we talk to David Walker? Let's talk to David Walker. With us today is David Walker. David is a native of Southwest England, uh, but uh, met his American wife, I think, in London and came to the United States in 1991, where they then relocated to the central California coast uh, to start a winery, the Firestone Vineyard. In 1996, he and brother-in-law Adam Firestone founded Firestone Walker in Los Olivos, California, and the company relocated to its current home at Paso Robles in 2001. Welcome, David. Welcome. Um, just slight fact check there. I, oh. I did uh, my. It was uh, my wife's family who actually started Firestone Vineyard. Uh, oh, okay, a couple of generations before us. But you, you did get it right. We did re- relocate and buy a tumble down old vineyard that um, um, has been our home ever since. So. I see. So that wasn't the same vineyard. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my apologies. No, not at all. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. That was actually a little bit murky to me too, since we're not wine guys. So we're <laughs> yeah. that's good. You know. and, and, nor, and frankly, counterproductive considering I have a vineyard, but I'm I am not a wine guy either. So <laughs> <laughs> we're all on the same page. Amen. So um we we thought it would be great to hear about your uh your time before starting Firestone Walker and going all the way back to uh, when you started to appreciate beer, uh, and you know, we, um, when we, we full confession, this is the second time we've tried this recording. And in the first one, we figured out that you're actually from Devon. Uh, and I guess that's where you started drinking beer. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, um, uh, grew up in a rural County, uh, drunk, obviously a lot of um, great regional beers. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a sort of a real ale world. Um, so when I landed in the US um, and, you know, I was sort of presented with Miller Genuine Draft, I was perplexed. Um, <laughs> and um, as I said, I'm not a wine guy, but um, so um, it, I, I decided to, well, I decided I sort of naturally started to, to dig into the, uh, you know, the the local craft beer movement, um, which lucky for me was, was, somewhat you know beginning to get going in in california um so you know in those days when we first arrived it was you know anchor steam um i even loved at the time um uh red hook they made an esp um Mm -hmm. and um it was made out of the old the the first brewery they had in in ballard up in uh up, up in seattle and it was it was delightful i mean it had a had a had some flaws to it um but we loved those flaws and uh um, and then, you know, of course, beers like Sierra Nevada and so forth. So, yeah, I sort of, uh, you know, that's how I sort of nose my way into tasty beer over here. You know, we all came to beer uh, in different ways and, and kind of with different levels of sophistication. When you were drinking beer in 
in England before you came over here, did you have like a, a sophisticated palate? Did you understand what you were tasting? Did you know that much about beer? No, you know, I was a vigorous beer drinker. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I always, I, you know, I would always pull pull ale off the off the pump before I, I, I sort of jumped anywhere near lagers and so forth. Um but um, no, I, I, I would say I was I was a an unconscious drinker, um, and uh, but you, you know I knew I knew that uh, um, I knew the difference between a sort of a poorly made, poorly conceived, mass produced beer versus something a little bit more um, intentional. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know uh, there's a big difference between what was available in the mass market sphere in America, uh, probably compared to what you were used to drinking. Um, Patrick and I are uh, listeners of the podcast. Know Patrick and I are giant fans of Cask Ale uh, and big defenders of it. Right, uh, one of, kind of one of the the world's great expressions of brewing. And uh, when you decided to uh, start brewing, that's the tradition that you turn to when uh, with with double bale ale, and and you didn't do it an easy way. I mean, there are ways to make an English style pale ale or bitter that um, you know just requires an infusion mash and uh, fairly simple fermentation, but that's not how you decided to do it. it it's not, no. Um, I mean, but, you know, perhaps better to answer your question in terms of the beers that I love to drink is I loved English pale ales. And, um, you know, those those beers you could, you know, you could access up and down um, the UK. And, um, but really they were born in the center of England. And, um, you know, they were, they were born... Uh, you know, a hundred or so years ago. And the way they were made was fascinating. They used to run them, run these beers things called through, through what they call Burton unions, Burton uh, speaking to the region they were from. And they were, they were these linked wooden barrels. Um, and the beer would go through sort of a, an athletic fermentation in each one of these smaller barrels and then F of S into the next barrel. I mean, it was like some extraordinary organism. <laughs> and um, there is actually live unions still alive up in Marston's Brewery up in Burton-upon-Trent. They're the last ones standing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we decided to make an English pale ale, um, we were going to make it in that way. Um, and although technically it's not casks, I mean, in our case, we took a we took 60-gallon American oak um, wine barrels, clean wine barrels. <laughs> Um, and, and we connected them. Excuse me. Um, that's all right. And we and and we connected those barrels into our own sort of um, Franken union, um, and decided to to make sort of English pale ales in that mode. And that's that's exactly what happened. DBA was a um, uh, what we called a double barrel process. Um, what we discovered is actually the beer off the union was not the outcome we wanted. But if we blended it mm. back with the same beer that went through steel. Um, it was what we needed, and so that was the double barrel process DBA. And and what was uh, what was the difference between those two streams? Why why was not why why didn't the straight barrel process work? Well, just to get super geeky, um, you know, we yes. didn't line our barrels um, uh, the same way that the uh, the original English brewers did. We just actually put the beer straight into clean oak, so they actually picked up hmm. um, some of that sort of you know sort of Chardonnay oak um, flavor. And it was it was it's it was, it's great in the beer, but it's it needs to have balance and on its own. It was just too rich, um, and um, so we we blended it back with the um, you know the, the steel fermented and conditioned version until such a point we were happy with it. Um, in fact, you know if you come to our pubs, you can actually order unfiltered DBA, which is that beer which is one hundred percent from the union, um, and you'll see the difference. You can really pick up the oak in in the beer. So you're still brewing on the union system to this day? Oh yeah, we are. Um, you know, we brew a lot less DBA today than we did twenty years twenty years ago. Sadly, it's my favorite beer. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, we still we still run about twenty percent of DBA through the, what we produce through the unions, um, and uh, you know the unions are, are bubbling away on a regular basis. Um, I mean, they're they're amazing theatre in a brewery. Yes, <laughs> and, and um, you know the brew, as you know, brewers chase have chased wood out of their breweries, at, certainly at this stage in primary fermentation a lifetime ago. And so, you know, when brewers sort of nose around the brewery and they say, you know, <laughs> they look at it and it's like that's crazy. And uh, but um, it gets a lot of love. Um, those you know the barrels, um, it sits in the barrels for about four days. Um, each barrel gets a huge amount of attention from the lab. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we, we're, we're working up um, sort of lab profiles on each barrel before and after each batch. Um, and then after about six months, we ditch the barrels and um, get clean ones. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the theater, Je- Jeff and I have uh, visited the Marston's Brewery, in fact, and, and seen their union system. And we couldn't oh. get into the brewery, but they have it behind this big glass wall. So you can see it from outside yeah. uh, working away. So <laughs> it's quite it's quite something. You know, then shame on them for not letting you go in there. I mean, it's it's just the most extraordinary. Um, you, you know, you can walk along the, the the sort of gangways in between the unions. You know, over the barn backs where you see the beer sort of effervescing and sort of flowing through the whole contraption, and it's 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 just life changing. It's just yeah. extraordinary. Um, it's like it's, you're in the middle of ferment. It's like you're right in the middle of fermentation, which is yeah. amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. In their yeah. defense, it was a it was an accident of scheduling. We we were there on a Sunday and they weren't open. So, oh right, okay, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> had you had you been able to visit uh, Marston's or or I guess they were probably the last one even then that were still using it uh, before you started? Yeah. Marston. No. I, I I mean I visited them soon after we sort of developed it, but no, we did everything we we could out of books, and um, mm. it was not a um, uh, we you know we didn't uh, perhaps if 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 I had if we had we'd have done it differently, but but. Um, we, we, we didn't. And we got, you know, we got the outcome that we needed. I mean, I, I, I tell this great story whereby, um, you know, if you read about Burton unions, um, you know, the, uh, the historians of beer, they, they just sort of, they're never really um, um, sort of sure about the impact that running beer through a Burton union gives to, mm. to the beer. Um, they just say it gives a characteristic sort of flavor. And, um, when we started, you know, early early in our early days, I think 95, 96, I was at the Great American Beer Festival. You know, in those days, it was like a sort of a sort of small regional veterinarian get together. I mean, there was about 50 of us with our, you know, um, cool, coolers staring at each other in a small room. And um, Michael Jackson came by and tried the beer. And the Michael Jackson, the, the you know, the great British beer um, commentator. And um he gave us a thumbs up. He said, you know, this has got the characteristics of the union and, and uh, thumbs up. So it was <laughs> like blessing from the Pope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And, yeah. and, and he's a guy who was starting to write about beer in the 1970s. So he remembers. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, uh, I mean, that was, yeah, that was, that was all I needed. It's all I've ever needed actually, in terms of a blessing of that beer. So. Uh, uh, David, while we're talking, this is my excuse. I actually have a bottle of the double barrel a- ale with me, and there's nothing that says good audio than listening to a man drink a beer. But yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to enjoy your beer as we talk. <clears throat> good. Make sure you drink it in a glass. I mean, yes. Sure oh, will. always. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff knows. Decant always. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick's a big fan of decanting, and good. and I am too. And yeah. uh, unless you're just uh, drinking a, yeah. a beer that you don't care about, but so I, I'm curious why. Uh, I'm curious what California was like in the mid 1990s and why you thought that this would be a good product to kind of launch with and where you saw it fitting in with the California scene at the time. Well, you know, um, my partner, Adam Firestone was, was running a third generation family winery. And, um, and, and, and as I said, we, we were growing grapes, but you know, we, um, obviously been sitting in the bleachers of the, the American wine revolution that had kicked off in the seventies and, there'd been a similar sort of um, complete disruption of a monolithic industry. You know, I mean, in America in the seventies, the number one wine was, you know, was ripple. And and now, now there's several hundred, hundred wines in your local, you know, your local liquor store. Um, And so that evolution, that revolution um, was, was obviously one of taste and regionality and, and so on and so forth. And so it seemed, you know, it didn't seem a, a, a far stretch to think that the same thing could happen with, um, with starting a brewery. Um, so there was that reflex there. You know, we were surrounded by winemakers. We were winemakers. You know, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't crazy. I mean, it wasn't like we were going to, you know, hike to Iceland or something. It was, it was something totally, totally natural. Um, I think we, we all who started breweries in that time underestimated how difficult it was. I mean, mm. the, you know, I often like to say, and I, I'm, I'm like a, a broken record here, but, you know, our biggest issue in those days was indifference. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. consumer was just indifferent. No, they weren't that interested in what we were doing. Um, I mean, nowadays, you know, you, you start a brewery and there's a long line 
uh, <laughs> you know, the day you <laughs> open the door, um, you know, people, people just weren't interested. I mean, the concept that beer meant more than just refreshment and good times was, was sort of alien. I mean, the big brewers had somewhat diluted their message, no pun intended, down to just sort of brand and forgotten the discussion of beer. Um, I mean, that was the blessing of the real ale movement in Britain. You know, it brought it brought um, provenance and flavor and artisanship and uh, freshness and regionality back to the discussion with beer. And uh, craft, craft beers and craft brewers did that. Mm-hmm. Ha- having spoken to some of the original uh, founders, they relayed to me that it was one of the, the difficulties is, is that it had been so long in the United States since anybody made anything but mass market lagers that they were trying to educate people about the beer even as they were introducing it. And I'm wondering uh, what kind of challenges that posed for you selling this kind of beer uh, to people who probably the, the, the large majority had never tasted anything like it. Well, you know, what was interesting, actually, is I'm sort of happy we started with an English pale ale because, I don't know, as you're drinking that beer, I mean, you can understand why the English pale ale was the British brewer's answer to the lagers that were sort of flooding into their markets 100 years ago from the, you know, mainland Europe. I mean, it was, an English pale ale was developed as an accessible, really drinkable, sort of flavorful beer. Um, You know, it wasn't a big thick stout or a, you know, a lambic or a, you know, it, it was a very approachable, sessionable beer. And so I'm sort of glad that we started with that beer because I knew that once we could get it in a glass and into someone's mouth, you know, they would smile and the conversation would, would then go to the next level. And we we built our brewery on the back of of DBA. I mean, we got such a good local following from folks who who just sort of enjoyed the experience. So that was... That was really not the issue for us. I knew that once I could get people to drink the beer, we were okay. At the time, I know there were other brewers who were really pushing, you know, um, take our, our, you know, our brethren down in San Diego in Stone. I mean, they were leading with Arrogant Bastard. They were leading with beers that really sort of disrupted your expectations of what you were going to drink in all ways, you know, um, from the branding to the flavor. And, you know, uh, we felt that these beers um, were, were complex enough for us to be proud of, but also accessible enough for people to, you know, to want to take home. Right. What do you think of the beer, Patrick? Oh, it's astounding. I haven't had one in years, uh, embarrassingly. Right. And I'm sitting. I'm sitting here first, thinking, I, I I'll spend uh, a fortune on uh, an imported London Pride, um, right. and, there's no, and, there's, and there's no need. Yours is uh, incredibly authentic. Is it? Um, it is absolutely. Do you, do you use imported malts, or do you have domestic malts? Uh, we're using, uh, we're actually using malts from Canada. Um, mm. uh, you know, we're, we, we have a, I mean, obviously it's, um, it's, it's, it's our own in-house yeast now and has been for many years, but it was, a uh, it's that classic sort of London ale yeast, which is yeah. a sort of, a, a hybrid of, um, uh, Wells and Youngs and Fullers mm-hmm. and everybody else who was sort mm-hmm. of bouncing around those years. But, um, it has, yeah, I mean, it has all of the characteristics of, of, of something like London Pride, and yeah. um, and that's you know that's that's I mean so obviously it's, it's five point two percent alcohol by volume, um, which makes a little bit bit more difference, but um, it's 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 delightful, really good. Yeah, I think I think the the imported London Pride we get is a little stronger anyway. So, How is uh, it? Okay. yeah, I think it's so. This has a richer um, you know a, a rich smooth mouthfeel, a nice biscuity uh, yeah. malt malt flavor. That's what I really miss about a lot of modern beers is that malt forwardness um yeah. and also just delightfully hopped um, um yeah, yeah. And that's, subtle, subtle but lovely right and that's the well that's that's you know that's the genius of the noble hops you know they were sort of mm-hmm. the, gold, the, the goldings i mean we we have styrian goldings in this as well and mm-hmm. um you know those 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 beers really um yeah they deliver that that those hops i wonder what, so back when you were first starting to drink beer um there was a version of the English pale ale that was quite stiffly hopped, like Bass is sort of famous back, you know, back in the, the day for being uh, fairly bitter. And I, I was also impressed when I had these beers before we, we spoke uh, at, at, you know, it's a pretty darn robust f- beer in terms of a flavor profile. And I'm wondering, did you get to taste those before, um, you know, bitters became a little bit more gentle and, and, and kind of uh, soft in the palate? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I tasted those beers and um, I, I knew that, you know, we wanted to go in, in more of this direction. I mean, I think, um, you, you know, we were obviously influenced by the beers that were being accepted at the time here. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, you know, even, you know, Sierra, even Sierra, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which probably technically was an IPA in those days. I mean, even if you drink that beer now, it has, it's, it, you know, it still has that sort of nod to, to balance um, mm-hmm. that, that we've, we, um, uh, you know, a lot of consumers are not seeking anymore. Um, but uh, no, I, 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 um, I, you know, I think the beer was, I mean, without question, it's an English pale ale, but I think we, we were also making sure it was, it was addressable here in the US. Right. Uh, to, to kind of, tell the story through the, the, the eyes of, uh, craft brewing. It was also that period you just mentioned stone and the rise of, of San Diego's hoppy beers. Um, the, the decade after you launched your brewery was kind of the time, uh, hops came forward in the American palate. What, 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 what did you guys do to evolve into that, you know, in the next decade, uh, that, that period when people were really, especially bitterness. Um, well, we, you know, it was sort of interesting. We had great fortune in our, in our, in our brewery, um, you know, about four or five years in Adam and I bumped into, um, a chap called Matt Brunelson. Um, and, um, <laughs> well, I, I may have heard of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, Matt, Matt started out his life as a hop chemist. Um, uh, and then obviously he rolled to Goose Island and eventually found his way, um, west to to our brewery and and as as has been the vision for our beers for 20 years and um you know he he obviously had a, a reflex and a and a huge amount of enthusiasm and curiosity when it came to to sort of the the, the hop trends in the u.s and um he he very quickly um you know, the, the timing was perfect. I mean, you know, we, we migrated from making English pale ales to making California pale ales pretty quick. I mean, Pale pale 31 was um, a beer that sadly we don't make anymore um, mm-hmm. because people won't drink it and we can't keep it fresh. But, um, you know, the beer won, you know, four gold medals at the World Beer Cup and four gold medals at Great American Beer Festival and, mm-hmm. and really was sort of the, you know, one of the gold standards for that style. Um, but the point that I'm making is, 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 you know, we had a, um, we had a vision and we had a passion for hops and, um, and that obviously was driven by Brunelson and, um, I, we, you know, our brewery was then pretty well much, um, moved to being a hop forward brewery for, for many years and still is. Right. Following that through, uh, when we get into, uh, you know, maybe 15 years into your, your, uh your life at Firestone Walker, that's when we started to see that incredible explosion of not just breweries, but kind of improvisation in terms of what people were doing, you know, experimenting. Um, we, we saw loggers start to come around. Uh, there were, that's when, you know, sour beers were starting to, people were experimenting with wild and sour beers. And you guys were also working with this. Uh, and I, I'm wondering as you age, so, you know, 15 years in, you probably felt like you were a pretty mature brewery and you had to continue to evolve. You know, <laughs> uh, if we'd interviewed you a decade ago, you'd probably have felt like you'd been around a while already. Right. Uh, how, how do you keep evolving and how, how you know, what's the process of, of seeing these trends and continuing to evolve to keep, you know, keep keep the uh, people people's tastes are changing and you know you've 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 got these uh new beers coming out how do you how does that that process of evolution look well you know i mean it's it's i mean there's been so many different tracks that we've traced as as a brewer over the last 20 years and you know i mean first of all first and foremost we're we're brewers and the people who actually um uh, the people of our brewery are curious about beer so we're sort of screwed out of the gate in terms of trying to be disciplined and only make a couple of beers you know i mean everybody is interested in beer and talking about a new beer and why don't we do this and why don't we do that and we so we we get we get distracted all the time out of out of a passion for what we do um so you know we have strong ales you know aged in bourbon barrels we have sour beers we have wild ales we have um you know straight up 
um, sessionable blonde ales. We we and then we also have just a load of IPAs and and you know we I mean, you're constantly tracking several different initiatives. I mean we have actually four or five different brew teams. Um, you know we have a um, you know we have, we we've put a small brewery into Venice just out in in Los Angeles. Um, and we've got a small ten-barrel brewery there, and all, you know all we're making is the, of these, you know, sort of yeast-forward, heavy, um, hazy beers, and um, just experimenting wildly down there. Um, and you know, the, the, the evolution alone of IPAs is extraordinary. I mean, we've gone from a straight-up West Coast IPA like Union Jack, you know, seventy-five IBUs, seven percent alcohol by volume, um, you know. Citra and Simcoe and Amarillo as the driving hops to to these 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 extraordinary beers that are you know turbid and um, honest still I mean they're still made in in a um, you know still made the way beer should be made um, but with these extraordinary new world hops and and yeasts that you know keep sort of haze retention and um, you know and, and you can give them to people and they they you know, someone who wouldn't have drunk a West Coast IPA would will drink this because it's so fruit forward. It's it's almost childlike. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, we, it, it is it's it's the biggest riddle for us now as a as a as a as a brewery that you know. I mean, we have to brew a certain amount of beer to keep everybody smiling. I mean, we're a we're a brewing half a million barrels of beer a year, and um, you know, we're no longer a, a sort of a scrappy little. Little, little brewery. I mean, we've got we got mouths to feed and and um, you know keep the party going. So you have to be somewhat intentional about what you focus on. But um, you know, we'll make ninety different beers this year, um, and most people will only see you know a handful of them. But um, it's yeah, it's it's one of the biggest dynamics of being a modern craft brewer is 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 you know is 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 trying to work out you know priorities. You you were one of the first breweries to lead the Pilsner revolution uh, in, in craft brewing, which, you know, it looks like it rolled out at different times in Portland right now. Uh, most breweries have some kind of version of a Pilsner. Um, it's, it's quite popular. And I know in other places, it's kind of, it, you know, it had its moment and then it faded away. But Pivo Pils was, you know, I know that it, it no longer is a huge seller for you guys, but it was a pretty darn important beer uh, nationwide. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about when you, when you release a beer like that, it's this classic beer that everybody loves. Um, and then it starts to fade a little bit. Uh, we could say the same thing about DBA, but are these your children that <laughs> it seems like that must be tough? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's one of the biggest issues is you're sort of um, killing your children. I mean, we don't say that we, we sort of say we bench them. I mean, we, we took Wookie Jack and double Jack off the market for, um, several years and then we mm-hmm. then we sort of put them back on again um uh seasonally um you know beer like pivo which is truly a, a thoroughbred i mean uh and and really a breakthrough beer in terms of you know this was an italian pills right. it was dry hopped i mean i remember at the time we had some germans over installing some equipment and they were all fascinated by the beer i mean they all sort of chortled at the fact that we would dry hop try <laughs> <laughs> dry hop um a pilsner and um and you know even though they they wouldn't admit it they they loved that beer um it's um but um yeah i you know i know that um up in the pacific northwest uh, my friends from freem have done a great job on really honoring the style and 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 focusing on it and i think um you know, I, I wish we could. I mean, I wish we could make one beer and as a brewery and just and just you know have that as 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 our focus. But but sadly, you can't. I mean, the the, the genie's out of the bottle with the consumers that we've created. I, I you know I always say you know be careful what you wish for. I mean, we sort of created this rapacious palate mm-hmm. that, that folks who are drinking craft beer have developed, and um, now we have to you know now we have to fill it. Yeah. You know, it's it's always one of those grasses greener things. If you were making one beer, uh, you would probably wish that you, you know, customers were a little bit more adventuresome, so you could yeah. make something. <laughs> exactly, and uh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, a big moment came when you developed and released eight oh five. How, how much intention was behind that beer? I mean, not not the beer itself, but the uh, you know the fact the fact that it would become such a giant beer. You know that that. 
I promise you there was no intention other than brewing the beer. I mean, we never had any idea that it would um, end up sort of being a cuckoo in the nest. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's by far the largest uh, wort stream and beer that we make at the brewery um, and um, has, you know, has forced us to expand the brewery again and again and again, um, way beyond our dreams. Um, I mean, we walk around the brewery now, all of us, and sort of pinch ourselves. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's uh, you know, as a young, as, as a young brewer, I, um, uh, when we were starting the brewery, <coughs> you know, I would visit Anchor Steam and I would visit Sierra. And, um, you know, I remember getting a tour of Sierra back in the late 90s with Ken um, and uh, just thinking, how, how do you do this? You know, how do you, how do you build something of this scale? I mean, how does it happen? And, uh, you know, nowadays we turn around and look at the brewery and, you know, we're, we're definitely right up there in terms of scale. And, um, but, um, it, it, it was, I'm sorry, I, what, what was the original question? I, I, was, <laughs> I was off dreaming about my tour with Ken. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was great too. It was a great tour. Um, but uh, what would be yeah. sorry, the original question? <laughs> well, I was I was I was asking about eight oh five, and I was kind yeah. of leading up the thing. That, uh, you know, by when you caught the tiger by the tail, it actually and you 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 touched on that. It it, it forced you to change as a brewery because it became so successful, right? Um, and I, I and I I was asking how much intention was behind that. Yeah. Um, you know, growth either comes fast or doesn't come when you expect it to, or you know, there's always these challenges and. Um, well, I think, yeah. I, I think what it taught us, actually, it taught us that, um, you know, we were talking with our with the, the beers that we were making, we were talking to a very small group of people. And, you know, we were we were sort of listening, you know, we were listening to our own choir. And what we managed to do with, you know, 805 was a beer that we made as a sort of a, a session beer, sort of an after after shift beer. Um, and it, we knew it was a crowd pleaser. Um, I mean, it was obviously a really great beer to drink um it's actually quite hard to make but you know it doesn't have the complexity of a you know full-throated ipa um and then all of a sudden we've we figured out that hang on a second the 85 90 percent of the people who have no interest in craft beer are drinking this beer Mm -hmm. um number one because you know they've got a sense that hang on a second if it's if it's if it's sort of local or from my region it must be sort of interesting um, the thing is incredibly drinkable. Um, and then on top of that, what we did is, is we, we actually sort of branded it with, you know, we gave it a story and, you know, up until that point, you know, we weren't great branders. I mean, we, you know, we were just sort of naming the beers after ourselves and, <laughs> and, and, um, you know, processes. And I mean, you know, the branding was, was, was pretty ponderous, um, you know, once we said, okay, well, let's, you know, let's, let's actually see if we can tie this beer to the region that the brewery's based in and talk, and, and why don't we talk about the lifestyle there? And um, it, all of a sudden, it just sort of connected. And um, it was actually a real lesson to us that, that you know, the, the power of branding. Um, and uh, we, from that moment on, we became a lot more um, careful about, you know, the messages that we wanted to articulate through the beer i'm afraid to ask because i don't want to sound too much like i don't know a madison avenue marketing exec but i'm wondering how it is you can take an 805 drinker and get them to try other parts of the firestone walker line or is that something you think about or you just let that happen naturally no no we 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 know it's happening i mean we know that we're moving uh we're moving people you don't go back you don't go back to light american pilsners after drinking um a uh you know a well-made four and a half percent Blondale, you know, life, life's different. It changes for you at that point. Um, and, um, people sort of move forward into, um, into a whole new world of beer drinking. Um, yeah, I'm sort of thinking about the, the struggles of some, I don't know, for lack of a better term, legacy craft brewers that have gotten big, but are now sort of um, seeing sales decline. And I'm wondering if the, 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 the sort of the special sauce for you guys is that you have this 805 entry-level beer that's so popular that can then sort of introduce and make a, make a Firestone Walker consumer, I suppose, out of someone who hasn't normally been a craft beer drinker. I, I'm not sure if it's a function of the time we're in or it's mm-hmm. always been this way for breweries, but um, you know, the, the life cycle of brands uh, or, or beers or anything that we choose is pretty is pretty short nowadays. Yeah. Um, and um, 
I think there's a uh, you know there's a real sense what you know I'll I'll take my beer to a festival and um, pour it for someone and realize actually I'm you know that I'm I'm pouring that person their father's beer and then I'm, <laughs> I'm pouring them DBA and right. uh, and you know no one aspires to drink their father's beer um, you know maybe their great grandfather's but certainly not their father's so um, there is a there is a sense of brand um, uh, fatigue mm. uh, that that can't be can't be dodged i mean I, I some of the beers that we've made are truly transcendent but we can't sell them anymore and right. um and, and i know that I, I know that is um you know that applies to um every large regional brewer that i know i mean um it, it's it's very hard to keep to keep those early those early brands are successful yeah that was a great question. I thought you were going to ask a question about um, Matt Matt's connection to a beer that was named after an area code. Oh yeah, I was gonna I was gonna fact check something. So a couple of weeks ago, we had Josh Noel on. Uh, yeah, from Chicago uh, Tribune. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, we were talking to him about his his book, and in his book, he makes a claim that eight oh five was uh, sort of a. Uh, 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 a preemptive strike against three twelve, which was making its way across the U.S. in the AB pipeline. No, it wasn't. I mean, I mean okay. <laughs> it was a good story, uh, though. <laughs> story, and Josh is normally on the nail, actually. Um, but um, and it, I can understand why he'd say that. I mean, w- basically, what happened was um, AB went through the Western United States and basically started trademarking area codes. Ah. And, they, and they didn't trademark ours for some reason. I see. Um, and, you know, we read about it and immediately trademarked our area code. Um, and four or five years later, we, you know, we'd made this blonde ale. We called it Honey Blonde. It was, it was a crowd pleaser. The, we took it to festivals and everybody loved it. And we even um, made it available um, as sort of a private label beer to some of our great accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they all used to, and, and the rates of sale of the beer was so much greater than others that we made. And so we eventually said, you know what, we, we, we just need to give this a name. And we literally opened up our file and 805 was right there. <laughs> and, um, and we said, you know what, we'll just keep this beer local and, um, and, and run with it. And, and it took off from there. But um, yeah, without question, Goose Island um, had uh, done it with 312. And, uh, yeah. And, and in Josh's defense, it's probably quite likely that's exactly what he, he wrote. My recollection was right. simplified. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that it was um, it was a moment that that compelled you to figure out what to do with this in kind of incredible growth that you had, and you decided to uh, go into a partnership with the Duval Mulcat Group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it you know it was sort of born out of the fact that you know in I think twenty fourteen, uh, my partner and I looked at each other and realized that we, in order for us to expand, we you know we were going to have to raise close to 70 million dollars and um you know we'd all already sort of hocked our grandchildren to the bank um <laughs> <laughs> with with the first like four or five phases and it was like okay so we went out and um tried to raise money through um normal channels and you know your local bank isn't interested um you then sort of dance with venture capitalists and those guys you end up feeling feeling it's that's just way too go-go um and then, and then predictably, all the big brewers come to visit you and um, and uh, say, look, you know, we'll we'll acquire all of you and shut your brewery down, um, or at least not shut your brewery down, but but you know, our operations are much bigger over here, so we'll migrate much of your production over there. And what we ended up doing was teaming up with um, the Mortgat family, who owned Duval Mortgat, and uh, we um, they ended up acquiring the majority of our brewery, um, and um, it's been fine. I mean, they don't really have a, you know, they're, they're investors rather than operators. They really don't operate in the U.S. directly. They own um, a brewery in the Midwest called Boulevard and one on the East called Elmer Gang. And um, uh, we all operate somewhat independently and um, uh, and and it's great. And, um, you know, we get to build the brewery of our dreams and build a platform that's enduring for our, our families. We're still very much involved and, uh, you know, we have the next generation getting involved now and, um, they're, they're great, great people. I mean, you know, they, they understand beer culture. They're a family owned brewery, uh, and, uh, they're, they're actually pretty well much of a similar size to us. So it's not as if there's a, 
800 pound gorilla in the room. I mean, we both, you know, we're, we're two people in the same boat. So if, if one, one starts getting upset, the boat really rocks. So it's, it's, you know, it's a great, great, it's, it's true partnership. So um, very happy with it. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really unusual company in that um, they, they do just have a hands-off approach, which I'm, I'm sure you looked at their Belgian breweries and, and saw that and that probably was an attractive feature. Yeah, exactly. Well, that we were looking for, we basically we were looking for a banker who <laughs> understood what we wanted to do. And uh, that's essentially, uh, that's, that's essentially what we got. So one of the uh, the things when I uh, write about breweries and talk to breweries that uh, freaks me out is thinking about you know you, you just said you sell a half a million barrels a year you know every every new year dawns and you, you know you, you somehow have to move a, hun- a half a million barrels a year in order for everything to pencil out and as you said things change people's tastes change and uh, you always have to come up with the next thing so you know. Um, Eventually, hazy IPAs came along, and you had to figure out how to how to make that transition yet again. You, you've been—I mean, if if we told the story of Firestone Walker, it might be a story of reinvention. You have to meet every era with a new one, and and so you you started working on Mind Haze. Being on the West Coast, I can say that we all didn't maybe take hazies as seriously <laughs> uh, as the rest of the country because we thought we knew IPAs. But what what was the process of trying to? you know, address that market and come up with, with mind haze. What, what did that look like? Well, we, I mean, first of all, we were late to the game. Um, and a lot of that came out of sort of a prideful um, protection of West Coast IPAs. And, um, you know, I remember Matt and other, other sort of luminaries of the West Coast beer scene just sort of shrugging at the whole um, sort of New England yeast forward beers and, and, and not not in a bad way it's just they didn't really understand it they didn't didn't look like fun and then they'd spent all their life trying to create these sort of elegant hop forward beers and and here was you know here was this this sort of beer that just just sort of flew in the face of all of the elegance that they try to achieve but you know it was sort of strange there was a sort of a light that went off with Matt I remember him calling me from a brewery in in you know in the countryside in Germany and he's drinking this sort of Hundred-year-old hefeweizen that's, mm. that's turbid and fruit-forward and looks like orange juice, and he's drinking this thing, and he says, "They've been making hazy beer for <laughs> 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 hundreds of years." I don't know why I didn't think of this. Um, and so uh, he came back with sort of a new, um, almost like uh, sort of a, it, 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 "It's okay, you know, you can do this." And um, so once you know, once the light went off, I mean. Uh, let me add. I mean, we're a sort of a, a we're a brew centric, we're a brewer centric brewery, in as much as um, you know, I, I can't just sort of roll in and 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 start sort of uh, saying the brew crew, or, you know, I want you know, I want you to make a, I want you to make a, go make a grapefruit IPA. I mean, you know, at the time when um, our friends at Ballast Point were sort of um, ruling the world with all of their fruit forward IPAs, um, our brewers just point blank refused. They said, "There's no way we're putting extracts in our beer, David." <laughs> and, and so we didn't we didn't participate in that <laughs> um we, you know we missed that whole <laughs> that whole trend right. um but um and you know since then we've evolved but uh anyway the point that i'm making is is um like the team is like fully on board now with with this style of beer and uh more importantly the consumers are and that's how it evolves but it takes time it, it just takes time to do it because it's you know it's people are involved yeah, reading about this, it sounds like it took you the better part of a year to come up with this beer. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It took a long time. We did, we did we did a whole series of brews down in Venice, uh, Gen One and Gen Two and Gen Three, and <laughs> we got closer and closer. I mean, the biggest issue for us was not making a flavorful beer that you could drink at the pub. The biggest issue was drinking a flavorful beer that could go in a vessel and mm-hmm. sit on the shelf for 120 days. Right. You could drink it. It had all of those beautiful tropical flavors and the haze was still held in stable in a sort of a stable uniform way and that was the toughest thing right yeah and and, and also that that was affordable because you probably don't rem- well you probably do know but a lot of these beers were ex- extraordinarily expensive they were sort of 16 20 dollars for f- four beers right. and they just weren't accessible to the common consumer they were more a collector's item people would go line up at treehouse and um you know uh, drive back with a case and and uh, sort of blow their holiday budget. Um, so, 
you know, the this was more a, you know, we needed to find something that we, we could sell in six packs in the local store and that, you know, the average average craft Joe could, could drink and, and afford. And that you could afford to actually sell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, one thing we, we haven't talked at, at all about uh, so much of the stuff you've done in, in terms of the brewing side. But um, I, I know that uh, it's a it's a real challenge to figure out how to brew beers uh, at a at a price point where you can sell them profitably when people are putting six seven pounds of hops in a, a batch of beer. And Matt and your team have done a lot to figure out the science. I've I've heard him speak about this quite a bit. Um, and you know, it, it it's possible to develop a beer to throw together a beer uh, fairly quickly, but in order to put it into production in a national environment like that, it's pretty challenging. So um, uh, a year's development yeah. is probably not actually all that surprising when you think about what's at stake. Yeah, no, absolutely. What's at stake is a, is, is a great way to put it. I mean, because you, you, you know, you often try and make decisions quickly and you think, Oh, you know, what, what impacts that going to have on our legacy and things we do and what does it do to the brand? It almost bears not thinking about it. You just have to sort of close your eyes and charge forward. <laughs> you wouldn't do anything. Um, yeah, you seem to have an instinctive sense of what is, you know, the kind of the Firestone Walker way. You've anticipated things to brew ahead of time. You've caught up with trends that you didn't invent. Uh, and you've avoided trends that maybe wouldn't have been so good for your brewery to have, you know, have followed like <laughs> yeah. grapefruit IPAs. and Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I- Absolutely. I know. I totally agree. You know, and a lot of that is, is comes from the consistency. I mean, obviously, you know, Matt's Matt's been in the cockpit for a couple of decades. Adam and I are still very engaged. And, um, um, you know, our team is, you know, many of our team have uh, been with us sort of 10 to 20 years. So, you know, there, there's just a sort of a sense of the way that we like to do things and more. And that's been sort of formed by how we've done them. I, you know, I think that often happens with with breweries that uh, that, that change hands, or you know, the, the leadership retires, and and um, you get a whole new group come in. I mean, it, it it you can, you know, you can shock a brewery to a point where it's it's a totally different brewery and put it at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that happens regularly. Well, as we wrap up this interview, um, and and you think back on your twenty five years as a brewery, you mentioned, and we have to think about our legacy. At this 25-year mark, how would you characterize the legacy of the brewery? <laughs> well, um, how about this? Matt always likes to say we've changed the world of beer, and um, he, you know, he, that's collective. Um, when he talks about him and us and all the folks who 25, 30 years ago started causing enough trouble to get craft beer off the ground, mm-hmm. and you know, we were definitely probably second generation craft brewers um, but we were still early enough to claim to be part of the sort of the early days and I, I, I sense that that's the greatest thing that we've done is that you know American craft brewers number one but I would say specifically West Coast craft brewers have changed the world of beer I mean we you know you go into any you go to Britain now and all the talks about you know the hop forward beers that are coming out of London or Leeds or um, anywhere else and these beers have all been influenced by the beers that came out of the west coast of the u.s and the same happening in germany in spain in italy so i would see the greatest legacy to california craft brewers is they've, they've had a profound influence on on beer which for the longest time has a pretty been a pretty monolithic sort of industrial brand driven enterprise and um this is you, you could argue it's even saved the beer industry so it's a it's a kind of interesting irony, isn't it, that you started out making a an English pale ale. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a, an Englishman moves to the United States and then helps yeah. uh, invent a beer style that goes back to England and now uh, change the beer that people who are growing up now are drinking. Yeah, well, I, hey, I wish I could say I invented that beer style. All I did was just play a role in in uh, propagating it. Um, I mean, it's a um, that's in the hands of. Uh, the guys like Ken Grossman and, and frankly, Matt Brinelson, So Sure. But uh, but you're right. Actually, you do bring up a point of irony. I mean, for the longest time, our number one selling beer was Union Jack, which was a West Coast IPA. That, to me, was ironic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. 
you have anything else last uh, parting comments or questions patrick uh, no, just I've now finished the double barrel ale. It's fantastic. So uh, cheers for that. And cheers for 25 years. It's uh, quite an accomplishment. I appreciate it. And um, thanks thanks for noticing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And get that get get that Marston's tour in. <laughs> yeah, we will. We will. We've got a lot more of uh, Britain to cover too. So. That, that's right. We need to head back there. I, I worry about yeah. some of those old breweries. So yeah. All right, David. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, we're going to say goodbye now, but don't hang up the phone after I we stop recording. Yeah. And um, we will uh, hopefully, after all this COVID is done, maybe we'll come down and see you and have a pint. That would be fantastic. I'd, I'd love you to do that. We'd Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jens. Yeah, take care. Cheers. Bye. All right. We are back from an interview that we haven't actually done yet. So I will just confess that we know that was a spectacular interview, but um, can't say a huge amount about it because uh, we're about to record that. But we're here at the end of the interview uh, with the mailbag. Oh, you broke down the fourth wall. I know, something we never do on this pod. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, anyway, we, we would like to thank David. I'm sure we did it on the podcast, but... Um, uh, we were we've we were playing tag with him on email for a while to try to get this done, but um, he's a very interesting. What you guy. mean to say is that was an amazing interview? I'll... It was well, of course, it was an amazing interview. We, yeah. we already know that. Yeah, don't you think? It, don't you think his answers were amazing? They were really amazing. Yeah, super interesting. That one where he said that interesting thing, it was. Yeah, great. that was great. No, I really, I really <laughs> liked how he talked about. He talked about the brewery and he talked about the history, and that's just fantastic. Yeah, and, and the beer. Yeah, and the beer. He talked all about the beer. That's fantastic. <laughs> all, right. all right. See, see, that's how you do it, Jeff. Uh, okay, uh, I've been, <laughs> been educated. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do the mailbag in Sherpa. We have one mailbag from Margie uh, Gator, and I hope. Uh, Are I you got, sure it's Margie? I'm sure it's Margie, but I'm not sure it's Gator. So uh, I got instructions on how to pronounce uh, Margie's first name, but not her last name. So we hope for the yeah, best. But you and I didn't necessarily agree on the, on the instructions. So this is going to be funny because she says. Your attempts at pronunciation crack me up. They crack us up too. Yeah. Uh, the Oktoberfest Meadow. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, Theron. No, no. <laughs> Theron Senvisen pronounced Wiesen at the end. Tip for German. When there is an IE or EI, you pronounce the second letter. So a meadow, Wiesen, and the numbers two and three, zwei and drei, are zwei and drei. Yeah, see, I, I remember that's. There's a very few things I remember from my high school German class. There you go. But I can count to 10 and I can conjugate the verb to be. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Which, which helps me out a lot when I travel in Germany. I, I will tell you, Margie, we are going to continue to mess this up uh, until the cows come home. But it, it's fun for you German speakers. Uh, we hear from you that you are amused by our foibles. So please enjoy. Yeah, well, we should just record Alan Taylor saying like all the German words we could potentially need. And we'll plug them in. The, we'll splice them in. <laughs> anyway, uh, to, uh, to be fair, she says, I am writing mostly though to say, please stop saying you're old. Which, because if you are old, then crap, I'm even older. Yeah. I think I have a couple of years on you guys. So please, we're not old. You're right. 50 is the new 20. And you, it, I, I loved this because I knew this was coming in. And uh, what did you do at the start of the podcast? You complained about being old. So there it is. Perfect. But that's what. What's the point of being old if you can't complain about it all the time? I know. I'm with you. A lot of people mention this, and uh, many people because you know it becomes it becomes the central the central theme of your life. Yeah. How your body is slowly falling apart. How your <laughs> and how your mind doesn't work the way it used to. And many be, oh, because brother. because we are pushing out what we think of as youth later. Uh, I do hear a lot of from a lot of people think, saying, "Oh, you know, you're you're in your early fifties. That's not actually that old," and my lived experience is that it's pretty damn old. I feel, you know, I feel like I've been around a long time and my body's kind of crumpling up on me. So throw me this bone. I'm old. Uh, yeah. Well, if you, so Margie, sorry, that totally backfired. We immediately defend, went into a defensive crouch about how old we are. A few, a few, well, a few weeks ago, I made a quip about, uh, how I lost my power and it was sort of, and then we didn't also have like cell data and stuff and how it was like being transported back to 1992. And the joke was kind of, ha ha ha, that wasn't that long ago. But then I realized, no, most of the listeners, the joke is, yeah, that was before I was born. Right. right. That was like, that's terrible. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, I, 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 so in my defense, I teach, and this is the common refrain of teachers and professors everywhere, right? Like every single year I teach 
19 to 22 year olds basically, right? Like yep. they never change. And I just keep getting older. And so it really emphasizes that difference, especially when I make cracks about things like, I don't know, pop culture in the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> those I, those jokes just don't land anymore. <laughs> no, no, they don't. And there was a, I remember you started telling me that people were, were giving you this, the kind of stink eye that you give to dad when you're in your late thirties and making these jokes. Oh, so much. But now, oh yes. but now they don't even know what you're talking about. I'm sure they give you like the vacant stare. No, they give you that sort of pathetic look like, oh, grand, grandpa, grandpa's going insane. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think grandpa has dementia. Oh boy. Yeah, I got that I got that. Oh poor grandpa. Yeah. He's 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 dying. He's almost at the end. We we need to be we need to be kind. We need to just be be patient with grandpa. That's that's the real thing. Be patient. Uh okay. We we should uh we should probably wrap this up. So a few words going out. By the way, thank you, Margie. <laughs> Patrick's too old to remember from three minutes ago when we pronounced your name properly. <laughs> uh, that was my old man joke. Okay, uh, a, few, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to rate Five us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we would love to hear from you, so please do send us your comments, questions, suggestions, whatever, to jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog. Those things still exist, by the way. Speaking of being old, yeah, um, really, really honestly, they're there. Go find them. I just passed my fifteenth anniversary. That made me feel old. Yeah, yeah, that is old. And you still tweet at Beervana. That's also old. Do you have an Instagram? I do. Jeff Allworth. Oh, sweet. Do you have a Snapchat? <laughs> do not. <laughs> okay. Uh, I tweet at Beernomics. You do. Oh, you're supposed you, to say that. You, Patrick <laughs> Pete tweets at Beernomics. But but I remember the beginning of the show where I introduced myself. Exactly. So now you're just you're seizing it all. Okay. Well, I still have a little of this double barrel ale that I uh, that I drank during our interview. All right. Well, I have been drinking a beer my darn <laughs> self. I've been drinking another unicorn like I was uh, mentioned on the last episode. So I will uh, cheers you with that. Wait a minute. Like you're still drinking a week ago? Yeah, a whole week of unicorn beer? That's awesome. Uh, well, I was given more than one beer. So like last week, I cracked another unicorn Ooh. this week. And this is their uh, 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 Mexican lager. Oh, nice. So All right, cheers, cheers. Patrick.